Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, January 30th. In today's news, stranded in Wuhan, frustrated Americans wait to be evacuated, or they just hunker down. Emissaries of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are secretly trying to make a deal with Andrew Yang. And the eight leading anti-human trafficking groups will boycott Ivanka Trump's White House summit on the issue. But first, the big idea. President Trump's legal team offered a startling defense yesterday as senators debated his fate in the impeachment trial. They argued that presidents can do nearly anything so long as they believe that getting reelected is in the public interest. This assertion from Alan Dershowitz, one of the attorneys representing the president, seemed to take GOP senators by surprise, and few were willing to embrace the argument. At the same time, Republican lawmakers sound increasingly confident about defeating a vote expected tomorrow over calling new witnesses at the trial. Dershowitz made his comments as the Senate launched into the question-and-answer phase. Following a model established during Bill Clinton's trial, senators wrote their questions on slips of paper that Senate pages passed along to Chief Justice John Roberts, who's presiding over the trial. Roberts then read the questions aloud, glancing over his glasses as he addressed the queries either to the White House defense team or the seven House Democratic managers. All told, 90 questions were asked of the lawyers from 1 p.m., until proceedings drew to a close for the day at 11.30 p.m. last night. Dershowitz's remarks came in response to a question from Ted Cruz about quid pro quos, one of the offenses Trump is alleged to have committed. Dershowitz replied by saying, quote, if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Dershowitz's argument extends the line of reasoning I told you about yesterday when he contended that even if Trump did everything bad he's accused of and that's apparently in John Bolton's book, the charges against Trump still wouldn't constitute impeachable offenses. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell desperately wants to avoid calling witnesses since it could extend the contentious proceedings into unpredictable territory. By last night, he and his lieutenants were telling us that they think that they can win the vote. Trump is set to deliver his State of the Union address on February 4th, that's next Tuesday night, and Republicans want to get this trial behind them by that point so the president can use the speech as a victory lap. John Cornyn of Texas says he thinks they can make it happen. For his part, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer sounds glum about the prospect of getting witnesses. During a dinner break last night, he called it an uphill fight and said, is it more likely than not? Probably no, but is it a decent, good chance? Yes. Wednesday's Q&A session provided a window into the thinking of some of the swing members of the Senate. At one point yesterday afternoon, Susan Collins, the Republican from Maine, tried to ask a fact-finding question that would get into the president's motives in delaying the military aid to Ukraine. She asked the president's lawyers, before the issue arose last summer, had Trump ever mentioned the Bidens in relation to corruption to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's predecessor? Deputy White House Counsel Pat Philbin refused to answer, saying he's only going to talk about things that are in the record. That's lawyer talk for nope. 
House Democratic impeachment managers repeatedly made the point, including to Collins, that if senators want more direct information, firsthand testimony, all they need to do is vote to call Bolton to testify. Then another point of contention during the day was Rand Paul, the Republican from Kentucky, drafted a question that would name the anonymous whistleblower whose complaint about Trump's Ukraine dealings triggered this whole inquiry. Chief Justice Roberts declined to read it aloud. It's technically a violation of federal law to out a whistleblower. Toward the end of the night, Democrats then bridled over comments by Philbin, the White House lawyer, responding to a question from Chris Coons, Democrat from Delaware, about Trump's apparent public solicitation of Russia and China for compromising materials on his campaign rivals. Philbin argued that Trump's remarks did not in fact represent a violation of campaign finance laws that make it illegal to accept or solicit a, quote, thing of value from foreign sources. Fuming Democrats said Philbin was engaging in a wholesale rewrite of federal law to cover up for Trump. Many of the questions that we heard yesterday were submitted by senators to allow their side to repeat points they've already made over the past week and a half. First, the House managers got a chance to kind of clean up their comments. Then the White House got a chance to clean up theirs. There's 16 total hours allotted for questions, eight for each side. And the questioning picks back up again today at one o'clock. Meanwhile, away from the Senate chamber, Representatives for Bolton disputed claims by the White House that his book contains classified information that could prevent its publication. The former National Security Advisor's lawyer sent a letter to the White House asking for an expedited review of that Ukraine chapter. He said they need to expedite it because Bolton is actively preparing to testify before the Senate if Republicans vote to call him. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the death toll from the coronavirus has risen to 170 now in China with more than 7,700 confirmed cases of infection. That's an increase of more than 1,500 over the previous day. Remember the day before it was an increase of 1,000 over the previous day. At least 96 cases have now been recorded outside of mainland China and three other countries have reported person-to-person transmission of the virus. India and the Philippines reported their first cases in the last few hours. The World Health Organization is reconvening its emergency committee today. And the State Department just announced this morning that it will arrange extra charter flights to evacuate U.S. citizens from Wuhan, but not until next Monday. Those traveling will be subject to screening, health observation, and U.S. government monitoring. Stranded in Wuhan, many frustrated Americans are waiting to be rescued. Others are just hunkering down. Doug Perez, a native of San Francisco, has a Chinese girlfriend and a Labrador puppy, and he says he's not leaving without them. The Chinese government imposed the total travel lockdown last week, leaving 9 million people trapped in that city where the virus is raging. The hospitals are overflowing. There are literally makeshift tent cities that are being built with the sick. Already, at least 129 people have died in Wuhan alone, and experts say the real number is likely vastly higher. But hundreds of Americans are there with little information and a growing sense of unease. And they say inadequate communication from the consulate there. Perez, his native girlfriend, her brother, and Chubby, their pet Labrador, are holed up in a two-floor apartment. He says he's been watching The Sopranos to pass the time. Wearing a face mask and rubber gloves, he takes the dog for a walk on the almost entirely deserted streets. He says he steers clear of the few other people around. Even Chubby the dog 
has a mask. Although the pup apparently doesn't like wearing it, they venture out occasionally to stock up on supplies at local groceries. He said in a Skype interview from his apartment yesterday that he had just gone to get food and it was like being in a sci-fi movie. There were government agents with thermometers that he said looked like guns and they were testing everyone's temperature at the door to decide whether to let them in. He said there was one guy panicking who kept touching his forehead, freaking out, worrying that he wouldn't be able to get food for his family. Perez said he kept his distance. University officials here in the States are scrambling to prepare for the arrival on more of our college campuses. Schools like Arizona State University, where a member of the community has tested positive for the coronavirus, are issuing stringent travel restrictions to Asia. And a lot of schools with campuses in and near Shanghai have been forced to delay the start of their whole spring semester. Several schools like Baylor University in Texas have also been testing their students, isolating them in some cases. Number two, allies for Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have been speaking privately to Andrew Yang's campaign about cooperation in Iowa on caucus night. And Tom Steyer's campaign was contacted recently by a representative from Pete Buttigieg's campaign to feel out whether they could work together in some way. With just five days to go, several of the top Democratic campaigns and operatives are eyeing one another as potential and limited allies in their battle to win convention delegates. Candidates who don't earn support from at least 15% of those in the room are not considered viable, and then they don't earn delegates. Their backers are then free to leave or to align with another candidate. That can lead to negotiations between campaigns over the fate of the supporters of the non-viable candidates. Those specific deals would be harder for campaigns to use this year because a rule change means that candidates who reach 15% aren't able to then shed voters. That potentially offers more power to less popular candidates. Some suggest that it's far-fetched, though, to think that an Iowan committed enough to attend the caucuses on a freezing Monday night would be likely to make their second choice based on the recommendation of some campaign staffer. Biden's campaign is continuing to aggressively court endorsements from two candidates who have left the race, Kamala Harris, who I told you about last week, but also Cory Booker. Biden's been working him hard. Yet, those discussions have been complicated by the impeachment trial. Booker and Harris have appeared reluctant to make any endorsements while the hearings are ongoing, particularly when Biden's a focus in the proceedings and could still theoretically be subpoenaed to testify. Figuring out who won in Iowa next Monday night is going to be surprisingly difficult. So I want to lay that marker now for next week. We're used to knowing who won a race simply by looking at who got the most votes. Iowa's not going to be that simple, nor is the state Democratic Party helping matters. In fact, they're planning to release four different numbers. The results of the first alignment, where people go when they first show up at the caucuses, which, for all intents and purposes, Sanders will probably win. Then second, the results of the final alignment, which we have Biden most likely to win right now. Nothing's certain, of, obviously. Very fluid race. Then they're also going to release the number of state delegate equivalents that each candidate earns, and a bit later, the estimated number of national delegates each candidate wins. That's four different numbers, all aimed at measuring the same thing, who Iowa Democrats want to be the next president. It's likely that all four metrics will point to the same candidate, but there's a not insignificant chance (laughs) there's a scenario where four different candidates get those four different numbers. So everyone could claim victory and Iowa wouldn't really winnow the field meaningfully. It's definitely easy to see how the first two numbers could be in conflict. And in the wonkiness of the calculations, you can see how different candidates could find a way to claim a moral victory. After that Democratic Super PAC 
yesterday launched the $680,000 ad buy against Sanders in Iowa. The Vermont Senator's team tells me this morning that he raised $1.3 million in response. And Biden today plans to deliver a closing speech in Iowa that will double as a forceful rebuke of Trump as impeachment tensions obviously loom. The Biden campaign sent me a copy of the speech. It's heavy on Trump criticism and focuses a lot on character, which has been a central part of his stump speech. And Trump himself is flying to Des Moines tonight for a big rally there. I am going with him and I will have an update on that for you tomorrow. Number three, tomorrow back in D.C., Trump is expected to attend a White House summit organized by his daughter Ivanka on human trafficking. It's an issue he frequently describes as one of his top priorities. But the country's most prominent anti-trafficking organizations and advocates won't be there. They've decided to boycott the event. The groups include Polaris, the nonprofit that runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline, and the leader of Freedom Network USA, the country's largest anti-trafficking coalition. Their decision comes after months of anguish over what they describe as an act of public deception. They say that even though Trump frequently invokes human trafficking, his administration is actively endangering a significant portion of trafficking victims, immigrants. The advocates are especially alarmed by increasing scrutiny of T visas. Those provide temporary legal status for immigrants who can prove in court that they were trafficked while in the United States. At least eight organizations declined invitations to the summit because of their opposition to this administration's immigration policies. Three of those groups told us that they feared backlash over the decision, so they told the White House that there were conflicts with other events, but that's not the real reason. Speaking of immigration, high winds in California yesterday blew over several newly installed panels of Trump's border wall. You can't make it up. The wall literally blew over and landed on trees on the Mexican side of the border, allowing people to walk across if they wanted to. A Customs and Border Patrol spokesman says the sections that fell were put in recently, so the concrete had not had a chance to set. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, January 30th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.